Would you please turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 7? And you might want to just pop your finger in Exodus chapter 3. We are continuing our series on the book of Acts as we have returned to it up until uh, just before Christmas. By looking at Acts chapter 7, verses 30 to 34, please pray, by the way, for uh, Pastor Tyler and Pastor Davey. Davey is speaking at Alexander Park Avenue this morning, and uh, we are praying that God uses him there. And uh, not not Tyler, Pip, I beg your pardon, you're sitting in front of me. Uh, Pip is in um, Ballymena, and he is helping um, the Irish leadership team and the national leadership team explore some discipleship issues with um, the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity and one of the churches, they just took a series of churches that they wanted to explore and one of those is Balamina and um, Pip is there um, seeing what their service is like this morning and then talking to members of their church. He'll have talked to the leadership about how they think they're doing and then he'll talk to the church about how they think they're doing. Uh, That would be an interesting exercise, wouldn't it? So pray for both of them as they are involved in ministry elsewhere. Acts chapter 7, verses 30 to 34. Talking about Moses. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him, that's Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he approached to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the mistreatment of my people who are in Egypt And have heard their groaning. And I have come down to rescue them. Come now. I will send you to Egypt. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. The first 40 years of Moses' life are covered in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. In verses 17 to 22, the second 40 years, the middle 40 years, are covered in Acts chapter 7, verses 23 through to 29. The last 40 years of Moses' life are covered by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verses 30 to 43. And it's the first four verses of that section of Acts chapter 7 I would like to reflect with you on this morning. Remember that Stephen's address in the um, book of Acts is a great defense of God's purposes and God's plans in the world. It's a challenge to the Jewish leaders that are listening to remind them that the story that they claim is theirs and no one else's is actually entrusted to them so that the world might find hope. The story of God at work in Israel, God at work in Abraham, God at work in Jacob and his offspring is a story not solely for them, but a story that involves them in a particular way that the world might know life, hope, grace, mercy, and forgiveness through their offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way, 
We must be careful not to assume that the story of the church is our story for our blessing. Our story involves a unique role for us in God's purposes in the world. But that story is so that the world might know who Jesus Christ is. And on Remembrance Sunday, when we think about the conflict and the pain and the heartbreak and the struggle of the world, we must surely be challenged by the reality that we who serve the Prince of Peace, who are called to be peacemakers, who are to be men and women who offer hope and life to others, live in a society, in a culture, in a continent, in a world where violence and crime is still so strong, where conflict still rages across the world, we must be careful, mustn't we? To make sure that we remember that this story isn't just to bless us, it's that through our blessing, the world might be blessed. That, in the end, and we'll get to it in a week or two, is what caused Stephen's death. When he reminded the people of Israel that God had blessed them in order that the world might be blessed, that God loved the Gentiles, that God loved those outside of the Jewish faith. It was at that moment when he talked about the others that they picked up their stones to kill him because they couldn't stomach the idea that they weren't the special ones. We must remember that God wants to use us to bless the world, to reach the broken. And in this story this morning, we read of a remarkable encounter between Moses and God that sits at the heart of Stephen's understanding of what it means to be a follower of God and should sit at the heart of our understanding as Christians, if we are Christians, of what it means to be followers of Almighty God. I want to point you back with me for a few moments to the original account of what happened. That's found in Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to read just the first 10 verses. This is Moses at around 80 years of age. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me, 
I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh and to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship on this mountain. It's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable account of God encountering, meeting Moses in a wilderness. An encounter that changed not only his life, but Israel's life. Actually, an encounter that changed your life. Every one of us here this morning has been impacted by this story, whether we realize it or not. Every Christian culture, every follower of Jesus Christ, every Jewish person that has ever lived from that moment until this was impacted by this one encounter in the wilderness. This moment when this 80-year-old man encountered God, it changed your story and it changed my story. And if we will let it this morning, it might change our stories in a particular and very significant way. I don't have very many things I want to draw your attention to in this passage. But in the context of Stephen's great account of God's purposes through the Israelites, he spends so much time on Moses. And of the time he spends on Moses, he spends so much time on this encounter. Why? Because it was here in this wilderness that the destinies of so many would be changed and transformed because this man met God here. You remember his backstory. He'd been on the run for 40 years. He had killed somebody in Egypt, told earlier in the book of Acts. He had been found out and he went on the run. His confused identity confused even further as he had been adopted into an Egyptian family, brought up by his own mother in disguise, raised as a member of the royal family, having to run and hide into another culture, the Midian culture. So he has a Hebrew culture by birth, an Egyptian culture by education, a privileged culture by lifestyle, and now he's living in a wilderness, looking after sheep and wandering, part of a new culture called the Midians. And yet God meets him in this wilderness. If you read the story carefully, you will discover that this is a wilderness in different ways. It's a wilderness physically. Life doesn't flourish well in wildernesses. It has to put down deep roots. And Moses is in a physical wilderness. The area that he is in, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, both the same place, I'll talk about that in a moment, is probably in modern day Saudi Arabia. It's fenced off and people are not allowed to go up it. There've been various arguments and discussions about what this place is, where it is and what it means. If you look at the Bible a little more fully, you will discover that in Exodus chapter three, this is described as Mount Horeb. It's also described as the mountain of God in Exodus chapter 3. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 8, when the prophet Elijah was running away, um, many years after this story, perhaps um, 500 years after this story, 600 years after this story, maybe even more than that, um, Ahab is, uh, Elijah is running away from an evil king and an evil queen called Ahab and Jezebel. And he meets God at Mount Horeb, 
the mountain of God. It's the same place. It was at this mountain that Moses was given the Ten Commandments, only this time it's called Mount Sinai. That's described in the book of Deuteronomy and in Exodus. It was at the bottom of this mountain where he struck a rock in order to get water for the people of Israel. That's described um, in Exodus uh, chapter 17. This place is a powerful place of encounter in a wilderness. If you look at Exodus chapter 3 verse um, 12, there's a, a small promise at the very end of God's call of Moses. I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. This is the place where I will encounter you and this is the place that I will bring you back to. In Exodus chapter 33, we're told that the people of Israel set off from Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, this place on their journey into the promised land. It was here that they stripped themselves of the ornaments that the Egyptians had given them and they gave them to Moses and they left. This is a, vis a physical wilderness. It's a wilderness of abandonment, but it's also a wilderness of waiting. 40 years Moses has been running. 40 years he's been running away from his past, running away from his mistakes for 40 years. It's a wilderness of avoidance. No one can see me here. I can get on with being a shepherd here. I'm out of the way here. No one knows me here. I don't have to face my mistakes here. I don't have to face anything here. Here at the mountain of God, here at Mount Sinai, here at Mount Horeb, here in this wilderness, God meets him face to face. Horeb and Sinai are just two names for the same place. Physically, I mean. John Calvin suggests that one side of this mountain was called Horeb and the other side of it was called Sinai. In the same way, if I took you to Kansas City, I could take you to one bit of a city that's called Kansas City because it's in Kansas and another bit of the city which is called Missouri because it's in Missouri, but they're both the same city. One Jewish thinker suggests that a man called Abraham Ibn Ezra suggests that on the top of this mountain, and this is true of the one in Saudi Arabia, there are two peaks. One's called Sinai and one is called Horeb. It doesn't really matter, but these are almost certainly the same place. Why does that matter? Well, for several reasons. Horeb means the place of heat, the place of warmth, the place of fire. This is where the fire of God met Moses. Sinai means the place of sign or sin, spelt S-I-N, which is a Sumerian place. And Sumerian god of moon was sin. Uh, it's thought that the name Horeb is connected to the sun. So you have a picture of God encountering Moses in a wilderness physically, in a wilderness of time, in a wilderness of avoidance, in a wilderness of doubt, in a wilderness of running away, and in a wilderness on a mountain that is connected with both the sun and the moon and the idols of their culture, where all of life cannot be avoided in this wilderness. How many of us run into a wilderness trying to avoid life? Hide away from our mistakes. We never face them. We never come face to face with them. 
But in this place, God encounters Moses and the world is changed. A whole people is changed. You and I are changed by this. Maybe you find yourself in a wilderness of waiting this morning. You've been waiting on a promise of God for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. What if on the 10th of November, 2019, God wants your wilderness to become a place of encounter? Maybe you're physically in a wilderness. You feel as if your life is wasting away because of illness, because you're aging, because you're limited, because of circumstances. And you think, how could God ever meet me here? How could God ever find me in this place? In this place of uncertainty where my life seems so shriveled compared to what I thought it would be. Where I find myself so confined. I didn't want to be widowed at this age. I didn't want to be single at this age. I didn't want to be in this marriage. I didn't think it would end up like this. I didn't want to have this going on in my finances or this going on in my children's lives or this going on in my heart. I never realized that this sin that no one else sees would beset me for 40 or 50 years and no one would know about it but me. And you never miss church. You're never away from this place. And yet you are in a wilderness Maybe God could meet you there. Maybe God could change you there. Maybe God could confront you there. Maybe God could do that here. In this moment, in this place. Because an encounter with God, wherever it happens, changes us forever. God encounters us where we are. Not where we think we should be. Did you read this story carefully in Acts chapter 7? Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he approached to look, there came the voice of the Lord. When you compare that to the story in Exodus chapter 3, you find a really mysterious thing going on. There's a game of um, relational ping pong going on in this story. I don't mean that blasphemously or um, disrespectfully. Burning bushes in the Midian desert were not a big thing. They happened all the time. Just as you can see Californian wildfires and Australian wildfires at the moment, and every year we see them happening again, every year getting worse. The heat of the sun on dry tinder, on dry bushes, would often cause them to burst into flames. It's not an unusual occurrence, even today. What was unusual about this occurrence was that these flames were not consuming the bush. Moses noticed that. He stopped and he looked at it. And it was the unusual occurrence in the ordinary event of a day that got his attention. That's what we're told in Acts chapter 7. He noticed the fire. Listen to the ping pong in the original story, Exodus chapter 3. There, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. 
He looked, that means he intensely looked in Hebrew. And the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And then God said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Do you see what's happening here? There's this extraordinary event taking place right beside him. And Moses needs to notice it. It's as he notices what God is doing that God then speaks to him again. And Moses is drawn in and then he stops and then God says something else. And Moses responds again and then God says something else. And then Moses responds and then God says, take your shoes off your feet because you're now on holy ground. Now this is going to sound like I'm being, um, I'm exaggerating. I don't, I am not exaggerating. I theologically believe this. Every time we gather as a church to worship God, there is the potential for an ordinary moment becoming an extraordinary encounter. The question is, will you notice? Our team up there who do these words week in and week out, you never notice them unless something goes wrong like this morning. Let's show them our appreciation for all they do, by the way. And it's not unusual for something to go wrong in the mornings that you really need it not to go wrong. And they must sweat buckets standing behind or sitting behind those screens thinking, I hope nobody looks at me. But every week they do this. We only notice it when something's not right. And yet, we can be the same in our own lives. We don't notice God until something goes wrong. We don't notice we need him until something goes wrong. And here in this story, Moses notices. A couple of weeks ago, we were singing that wonderful new song that we're singing in church at the moment. Yet not I, but Christ in me. I don't know if you like it, but I just think it's phenomenal. And I find myself kneeling here at the front just saying, thank you, Lord, for who you are, for what you've done in me. Last Wednesday night in our Bible study, we sang this song, um, uh, more like, no, not more like Jesus. Worthy of it all. That, I knew it was in my head. Whoever said that, thank you. And we sang the bridge of it for the first time. And I found myself here on my knees with my hands raised saying, God, you are ministering in a particularly powerful way in this moment. I wonder how many of us notice the words not working, but don't allow ourselves to notice God's presence. And as a result, we miss an opportunity for an encounter. We notice the person we're sitting beside thinking, oh, not you again this week. And you've been married for 40 years. <laughs> But we don't notice God. Here's what it means to be Pentecostal, be charismatic. God is present in the same power all the time when his people gather. 
Whether you feel him or not, he's here. And every song, and every sermon, even the worst ones, and they're all mine. And every moment of life, and the wilderness, and the dryness, and the barrenness, and the uncertainty, but he invites us to notice him. And do you see what he does when you notice him? He draws you in. Moses notices a burning bush. And God speaks to him and he notices again. And God draws him in and he notices him again. Until God is able to say, you're on holy ground. Well, here's a bit of theology for you that is earth shattering and yet vitally important. You're always on holy ground. Wherever you are, whatever you face, whatever you are going through, you're on holy ground. There's a challenge in this for us. Would you let the ordinary today become the extraordinary place where God could meet you? Would you be willing to notice God? What might he be saying? Let's just think about this service. What might he be saying to you about your failures? About your wildernesses? Don't rush on to something else. Pause. Where might God want to be drawing you into a deeper relationship with him today? I'm worried about not having a Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm flirting about on the edges with guys that aren't Christians or girls that aren't Christians. And God says, your life is holy ground. What are you doing? You might be on the edges of an affair, fellas or ladies. And God is saying, I I am here. You're holy ground. What are you doing? You might be unhappy with someone and that has become the consuming passion of your life. You don't enjoy God's presence anymore. You don't find anything about him alluring or Uh, transforming or hopeful because you're consumed with a bitterness or a fear or an anxiety and God says you are holy ground and I am here what are you doing if you cannot find God where you are you will never find him where you're not there is no such thing as the perfect place to encounter God I'll wait until this is sorted out and this is sorted out and this is sorted out. I'll wait until I have no questions about this or this. I'll wait until I'm physically stronger or my marriage is stronger or my heart is stronger or my spirituality is stronger or I've got more money or I've got more time. Don't wait to encounter God. Encounter Him now. In this room, at this point in time, in this chapter of your story, in this season, the power of an encounter with God is that He will draw you further in. I have met so many people who are always looking for something to change before they can be happy. Who are always waiting on something else happening before they can reach contentment. But Christian contentment is now. In these circumstances, in this situation, with all of its uncertainty, knowing that God is present and gracious and good. What if this is a holy moment?
What if God doesn't need you to wait until you're fixed? What if the encounter needs to take place today? And what if God is as close to you today as he was to Abraham in a burning bush? But he doesn't come to you in a flame. He comes to you in a plate and a cup. And all he asks is that you notice the place of encounter can become a place of destiny. The wilderness that you are facing, the uncertainty, the waiting, the disappointment, the regret. God is here. God is there. God speaks. God knows. God sees. In Acts chapter 7, verse 33, we are reminded of God's holiness as he tells Moses to take his shoes off his feet. God describes himself not as a new, novel God, but as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who has stepped into history, has manifested himself to the people of Israel and now manifests to us, not in simply Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but in Jesus Christ. There is no clearer picture of what God is like ever, anywhere, than Jesus. And he has been revealed to us. We can read of his habits, his care, his character, his priorities, his life in the scriptures. And we see in Jesus the same characteristics as God shows Moses. In verse 34 of Acts chapter 7, we hear these three phrases. I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard their cry. And I have come down to meet them. In Exodus, back in the original story, we hear these multiple layers of God's closeness. In Exodus 3, 7, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. In Exodus 3, 8, I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to burn them, take them up out of that kind of, take them up out of that land and bring them to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, he says, the cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have not also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. I wonder sometimes if we fall guilty of thinking God doesn't see. God doesn't know. He doesn't hear my cry. He hasn't seen my plight. He doesn't understand what I'm going through. But what God says to Moses about the people of Israel or the Hebrews in Egypt is, I have seen, I have heard, and I have come. Why were they in Egypt in the first place? 
Because 400 years before, they went and settled there believing that the Egyptians would bring them life. The idols that promise you life eventually enslave you. And you lose your very identity under their hand. And it doesn't matter whether the idol is church, ministry, money, power, sex, wealth, influence, status, career. The idol that promises to set you free eventually becomes your taskmaster. And it will take everything from you bit by bit. Nobody in this room with their dying breath will say, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Nobody will say, I wish I'd got more money in the bank. But many of us might say, I wish I'd put God first. I wish I'd let my family know how much I love them. I wish I'd invested in friendships. Often we realize that too late. Could God be saying to us in our world today, to you in this church, to me, I am here. I have observed the misery of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. Could he be saying that to you in your impossible work situation? Don't think I'm not there, Jenny. Don't think I'm not there, David. I'm there. I know, I can see. God is here. And I have come down to deliver them. He came to deliver us through Jesus Christ. The new Moses. The better than Moses, the greater than Moses, the stronger than Moses, the wiser than Moses. He heard our cry. He saw our plight and he came down to deliver us and he finished the job. Hallelujah. And to anyone who finds themselves trapped here or online today, he says, I am here. And we say, then deliver me by changing my circumstances. And God says, no, let me first change your soul. Let me have you where you are. And now make a response to me. Do you see what happens in both Acts and Exodus? I have come. I have come. I have come. Now come to me. It happens in both passages. I have heard the cry and I have seen the plight and I have come down. Now you come to me. I know what you're facing. I know what's going on in your life. I am present to deliver you, but you must let me. You must come to me. The threefold coming of God in Acts 7 and in Exodus 3 is met by one request, one command. Now come to me. I have heard your cry, I've seen your plight, and I have come to you, now you come to me. I wonder how many of us expect that God should just do it all as we sit and do nothing. 
No response required, no openness required, no willingness required, no submission required, no repentance required, no humility required. No sticking at it, no discipline, no somebody speaking into our life, no somebody coming alongside us. We want our lives to be set free at no cost to ourselves, at no sense of having to make an effort. And God says, that is not how this works. I have come to you, now you must come to me. You must acknowledge that you need me. You must let me lead you. Do you know, I have a feeling that this room could become a burning bush of encounter today if we would let it. A place where God, by his spirit, through bread and wine, could reorientate, reposture, re-navigate you if you let him. Instead of looking for the next thing or trying to find the next place or trying to identify a better set of circumstances, maybe God brought you here online or in this room this morning to this moment to say, I am here in all my power to meet with you. Now come to me. Do you see what Moses does? Well, you won't see it in Exodus chapter, uh, in Acts chapter 7. But if you continue to read Moses' story, you will see it. In Exodus 3 and 4, I have met you in a wilderness. I have drawn you in. You've responded to me. Now come. I know what you're going through. I want to use you to bring deliverance to other people. In Exodus chapter 3 and 4, Moses immediately tells God why he's got it wrong. (laughs) Verse 11, who am I? Moses says. Verse 13, who are you? Moses says to God. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, if they don't believe me, what will I do? In chapter 4, verse 10, he says, I'm not able to do this. And then in the end of chapter 4, verse 13, he says, oh, just send somebody else. Isn't that what we do? What if your destiny is the key that unlocks the destiny of others? What if in Dundonalilam today, there are, there are thousands of people could be impacted by the choices that we make? As GB captains, as BB captains, as pastors, as deacons, as elders, as businesswomen and businessmen and doctors and nurses and, 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 and shop assistants and uh, managers and evangelists and carers. What if God can use you to unlock somebody else's life? I wonder how often Malcolm Duncan's responses have been, who am I, God? I'm not good enough. Who are you, God? I don't think I trust you enough. What if they don't believe me? Have I really heard from you? I'm not able to do this. I have a crisis of confidence or I don't feel gifted. Oh, just send somebody else. How very often we miss an ordinary encounter that could become an extraordinary moment because we are caught with our own sense of failure or identity. What are your reasons for not letting God do something today? I let him go five years, I let him down five years ago. That was five years ago. God is in the business of encountering us. Somebody spoke over my life that I could never be used by God, then break it. Somebody rejected me. Then let God break that rejection. A previous pastor hurt me. I am sorry on behalf of all pastors. But let God rebuild you. 
I was in a church before and got hurt. I'm afraid. I understand that. But how are you ever going to get over it unless you take steps forward? I'm not asking you to put your trust in Dundonald Elam Church. I'm not asking you to put your trust in Malcolm Duncan and Tyler Rawson and Pip Kerr or David Hume. I'm not asking you to put your trust in my preaching or in our worship leading or in Stuart McKaig. I'm asking you to put your trust in the God who has heard your cry, seen your misery and has come down to deliver you. I'll tell you where I'm asking you to put your trust. Here. In the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The most powerful encounter history has ever seen. This is holy ground. We are standing on holy ground. And where God is, everything is transformed.